So as Matt mentioned, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of John the Baptist. I hope that you found that helpful. I hope it's been a, a good way to start start working our way towards the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and the nativity, and all those things that we tend to think of at this time of year. I don't know what your household is like. It seems to me that the current situation has meant that it's been a bit like a race. And there's been loads of houses around the neighborhood that have been waiting for the starting to gun to go off. And actually many have gone a bit before the gun has gone off and there's Christmas lights and Christmas trees, many of which have been up almost since October. So I think a lot of people are looking for hope and are kind of pinning their hope on this Christmas season. And that will, this will bring some sense and some meaning to the year. But maybe, maybe that's not you. And equally, I'm sure there are many people for whom this year's Christmas will be a really different proposition uh, than they would have hoped and expected come last year. Um, maybe more lonely, maybe more sad. So I think there's lots of different um, mindsets in how we're coming to Christmas. But the good, the good news is that by focusing ourselves on the story of the birth of Jesus and his coming into the world um, and his ministry, there's something there that we can we can all celebrate, irrespective of our circumstances and irrespective of whether Christmas is what we expected it to be or, or something rather different. But we're not quite we're not quite there yet. Over the coming weeks, we will be looking at the, uh, the, the birth of Jesus and the stories surrounding that. But but this week I wanted to look uh, at another kind of introduction to Jesus that we get. And um, this comes from the Gospel of Luke, as has been read for us. And uh, sort of interestingly and, and uniquely, in fact, Luke records for us a couple of occasions um, that are significant that happen before Jesus starts his ministry whilst he's still a child. He records a couple of them. He records this one that we've just read. He also records another one when Jesus is a bit older and he, he goes to the temple. You may well be familiar with those stories already. But this is the one I want to look at today. So let's let's get into it and let's have a little look at the passage and just sort of try and get a sense of what's going on in the story uh, before we sort of dive into what the meaning and application of that might be. So to set the scene, this occurs shortly after uh, the birth of Jesus, which has been recorded by Luke for us. Um, Mary and Joseph have not yet left the area um, and they're so they're probably still around Bethlehem which I did a quick Google uh, a Google Maps search and made that out to be about 10 kilometers away from Jerusalem so uh, I guess a couple of hours journey maybe a little bit more but at this point in time Jesus is the baby Jesus is, is a month old so I don't know about you but making that kind any kind of a journey with a child that age I think is probably challenging. Um, and that, I suppose, just reminds us how significantly they took what it is they're about to do. So you'll see that Mary and Joseph take their son, Jesus. Um, they take him to the temple in Jerusalem and they take him to do a couple of things as it's described for us from verse 22. So when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem. Firstly 
to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And then also they come to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So there are kind of two things going on here. One is their offering of uh, a Jesus uh, consecrated to the Lord, and we'll get into that in a bit. And the other is, is to make atonement for Mary, having been through uh, the experience of childbirth. And Luke records for us that the uh, offering that they bring for that scenario is a pair of doves or two young or two young pigeons. Um, actually, they were permitted to bring a, a, a year old lamb. Um, and actually, it was if they uh, if 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 they didn't have the means to get a lamb, if they were poor or weren't able to get one, then they were they were permitted to, to to bring a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So by including that detail, I think Luke is deliberately reminding us of the sort of humble the humble origins of Jesus and the sort of um, the sort of lowly status, I suppose, of of Mary and Joseph and that family. And so as they come to the temple, um, they meet two characters. And we meet first of those, Simeon, uh, in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. And then if we skip forward to verse 27, so moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So I get the impression that he's kind of, He's kind of there already. And so Mary and Joseph uh, are walking into the temple. It'd be a busy place. Uh, lots of things going on, quite a big place. And uh, and Simeon is there already. And somehow he's able to pick them out from the crowd. And I don't know if he comes over and introduces himself or whether there's something more formal that goes on. But he ends up holding the child Jesus in his arms. Uh, and he, he, come, he, then, he then takes him and he praises God. And he comes up with some wonderful words again. We'll get into those in a minute. And in verse 33, you see the reaction of Mary and Joseph is recorded here for us. It says they marveled at what was said. Now, they've had a pretty miraculous 12 months, I guess, by anyone's standards um, with all that has happened to them. But the fact that they recorded as marveling at this, I think, just shows us how significant a day it was for them. And that's possibly why it's of all the things Luke could have picked. He's picked this occasion. And then we end up uh, meeting another character. I'm going to call these two characters messengers. The second messenger is, is Anna, who's a prophet. Um, and we get a bit of backstory about her. But she then comes up to uh, Mary and Joseph as well. I don't know whether she'd seen what Simeon had done and, and she worked it out or whether she just knew. She just knew and was led similarly led by the spirit to Mary and Joseph. And she comes over and uh, she greets the child. And again, she gives thanks and praise to God and then actually begins to, to talk about that uh, to all those that are around her. So it would have been quite a day, quite a day for Mary and Joseph. And you can see that after this happens, once they've done everything required by the law, uh, they return, turn to Galilee, as Luke describes it. So that kind of sets the scene. So let's try and let's try and picture that scenario in our heads as we as we look in this in more detail because I'd like to look at it in in three ways really the first is to look at the character of the messengers themselves 
to see what we can learn from that. And then I'd like us to look at the content of the message, what it meant then and what it means now. Before finally, I'd like to look at the context of the message. So three points, the characters, the content and the context. And conveniently, they all begin with a C. That was kind of deliberate, but hopefully it won't detract from what we're going to do. So let's let's start off. Let's get into the characters. And first off, I'd like to look at Simeon. So let's let's put verse 25 up again. Interestingly, we don't get a lot of backstory about Simeon. We don't really know much about him, which to some extent you might think surprising given the significance of what he knows. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. So we don't know we don't know his social status. We don't know his religious status. We don't know if he was wealthy or if he was poor. All that we know was that he was in Jerusalem. And then importantly we know that he was righteous and he was devout and he was he was waiting. He was waiting for something. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This I think is it's an idea uh, that points back to the prophecy and prophecies in the Old Testament. He was waiting for a day when uh, God would finally um, relieve Israel of her suffering, you know, of the oppression and, and the bad situations that she got herself into. And a day when God would be in Israel's consol consoler. You know, he would comfort them and care for them in a perfect way. Um, and he has been revealed by God uh, that he won't die before he sees the Lord's Messiah. God's promised savior. He's going to he's going to see him in person. Which is quite an amazing thing. Uh quite an amazing thing to have had promised of you to you. And the second character is Anna and we read about her in sort of verse 36. And we get a little bit more backstory here. Uh, we get a little bit of sense of who she is and where she's come from. She's old. You know, she's a, at least an octogenarian. Um, and her life is, I think, by the details that are included here, we're to, to think her life has not been a straightforward and simple one. Um, widowed after seven years of marriage, but then living on for, for many decades um, as a widow. And during that time, what we know about her is that she has She's devoted herself to a life of, of fasting, of worship, and of prayer. And I think there are two things that we can draw out from both these characters. They get to see a pretty amazing thing. A, a fantastic thing they get to see the lord jesus in the flesh and they know it's him long before uh, his public ministry is kind of revealed and actually in keeping with the rest of the, the christmas story if you think of the birth of jesus is announced yes to wise men but also to to humble shepherds well, shepherds I presume they were humble um, the message of god the glorious message of god comes not 
necessarily to the religious elite or those of high standing uh, or those who've uh, achieved great things. Um, in this case, it comes to patient and righteous people who have been waiting faithfully for this moment. Trying to think, try, you know, just trying to imagine Anna at, eight, at least 80, 84 years old, you know, having lived in the temple for, for years and years and waited, waited years and years and years to finally get to see the Lord Jesus in person. That must have been a pretty, pretty special and uh, life defining moment for her. And actually, I think from that, we should take two things that the Christian life isn't always one of intense, amazing spiritual experiences. Sometimes it calls for faithful and patient waiting. But perhaps more so, and particularly as we look at the Christmas story, you know, the, the news about the coming of Jesus. We don't have to wait. Jesus has come. We have, we have the, uh, we have the promised Holy Spirit. We have the Scriptures. We're not in the dark. They waited patiently and faithfully. God kept His promises, and they got to see something incredible. We have that on our doorsteps, both so to speak. So, although we're not there at the temple, and we haven't, we didn't see Jesus being presented at the temple. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we have it recorded here and we're not far off. We're not far off. So that's that's a little bit about the characters that hopefully we can sort of think upon and, and take away. So next I'd like to turn and look at the message itself. That's to say, what, what was it that Simeon and Anna actually said to the crowds? What did they say to Jesus and what did they say to God? So we can see what Simeon does in sort of verse uh, 28 onwards. So he takes he takes takes the boy Jesus into his arms and he, he draws upon uh, the sort of imagery and prophecies of the Old Testament and says this sort of this great um, little recorded section, which is sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. So the first thing to say about the message is it's a message of joyful hope um, and just great joy. Uh, he realizes that he has seen what God has promised him. There's nothing more to wait. So he says, now dismiss your servant in peace. It's completed. He's seen what he needs to see. He wasn't waiting um, for the Romans to be overthrown. He wasn't waiting for Jerusalem to become some kind of impregnable fortress and, uh, you know, God's people to be safe and secure for the rest of their days. He's seen the person of Jesus Christ and he realizes that that and he is the fulfillment of what was coming. So it's a message of great joy. And the second part of that is that it's it's a message for everyone. So if you look in verse 31, uh, verse 32, in fact, he says, um, oh, verse 30, let's start with, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. And then this is the key bit, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and the glory of your people Israel. So this this statement about who the good news of Jesus is for is, I think, as as relevant today as it was as it was then. At this point, looking over the history of the Bible, um, primarily the interaction between God and mankind had been through his people, a, a physical nation, the nation of Israel. By no means exclusively, but that, that's, the, that's the focus of that relationship. This is now changing, as it was prophesied to do, that the revelation will come not just to God's people, Israel, and it certainly does come to God's people, Israel, and, and these guys are a good testament to that, um, but it's to spread beyond that to the Gentiles, to, to non-Jewish Christians, the sort of people that we that we read a lot about in the book of Acts, which which follows on from Luke. And, um, you know, the good news about Jesus is universal. It's it's for all. And so for us. We're not so neatly divided into Jews and Gentiles, perhaps, or certainly not using those words, but. We must realize that. We don't have a monopoly on Jesus. Um, the gospel is not just for people who look like us and think like us. Um, I saw an interesting chat show the other day or highlights of it. They were talking about Christmas. Uh, they had one guest who said, look, I, I don't celebrate Christmas. It's, it's not in my culture to do. And that, that sort of took, took the audience by surprise. And they had um, they had Mariah Carey on. I think they even called her the Queen of Christmas because obviously she sang that very famous Christmas number. Um, that may be the cultural message of Christmas, the candles, the sort of Western thing. And I'm a fan of that. You know, I enjoy that. But the real message of Christmas, the message of hope that Jesus brings is is genuinely for all. Um, it's not confined to culture. It's not confined to any other stereotype that we might choose to uh, to put on it. It's probably difficult to, you know, when we're all kind of locked up in realities, we're only going to be able to see three different households or whatever it is over those five days. Um, it's probably more difficult for us to apply that now, but we must bear in mind that um, we will celebrate Christmas in in our way, but. The message of Jesus, the true story of Christmas, is, is much, much broader than that and goes out to all. And actually, you begin to see that in, in the passage as well. So after uh, the message that Simeon has brought, uh, we see how Anna reacts and we see that um, in verse uh, 38, where she says, so coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God. And she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So she sees the child, she gives thanks. And then her next reaction is to start talking about him, to start talking about him. Yes, to those in the temple who are kind of already uh, already waiting for it. But it's that that kind of instinctive reaction to share that good news. That's, that's inspirational, really. Um, that instinctive reaction to share the good news of Jesus. Is that an instinct I have? By the power of the Holy Spirit, I hope so.
I hope so. And actually, that's what I'd want to do to mirror the response of these characters, not just try harder and dig deeper and try and be more patient and more faithful. But in fact, if you look at Simeon, he was he was guided by the Holy Spirit all the way. Uh, and as believers in Jesus and as we read the rest of the New Testament, we know that we have that same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So so we have every confidence to believe that if we ask for help to do these things, uh, we can we can too. So that's the message itself. And then finally, I'd like to look at the context in which the message is given. I think as you read this section, you can't fail to notice. Um, and Luke, in fact, insists that we understand that everything here is happening according to the law. In fact, he actually he mentions it just in this in the short section, he mentions it five times. Uh, that Mary and Joseph presented Jesus to him as it was written in the law of the Lord. They offered a sacrifice in keeping what was said uh, in the law of the Lord. Uh, they, they did for him what the customs of the law required. It's, it's clearly really important to this story to understand that what's going on here is not just a, uh, a random sort of act of, I don't know, spiritual don't quite know the word but it's you know do you know what I mean it's not a random decision it's not just a whim it's not just yeah that sounds like a good thing to do let's go to church today and then let's take Jesus with us and, and do this no it's it's a considered and it's a specific thing so what are we to take from that is it just a tick list to sort of prove that Jesus did everything that was required by the law well, it certainly is a bit of that. And actually, we read, it was great to see that Matt brought up Galatians 4. Um, that was one of the verses I was thinking about putting in here, and I didn't. Um, but the fact that Jesus did exactly what was required by the law is really significant to the story of our salvation. And something that as we as we go into the Christmas story, I hope we can really kind of get to grips with. And that will give us a broader and a deeper understanding of who he was and what that means. Um but I think there's something a little deeper here that we can we can have a look at. And that comes, I think, from looking at the the particulars of what uh, part of the law they're fulfilling here. And in particular, if we look at verse uh, 22 and 23, uh, you see Luke quotes from Exodus, actually, from the book of Exodus in verse 23. Uh, and then from Leviticus later. So in verse 23, he says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And if we actually, so let's look, if we look at the book of Exodus and where that quote comes from, uh, it actually comes from a story we might be familiar with, which is uh, the time straight after God's people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. If you remember that, after Joseph and his technical dream coat and all of that stuff had happened, uh, Israel was subject to harsh treatment um, and were enslaved as a people by a uh, an unrepentant, hard-hearted, power-hungry pharaoh. Really, uh, they were made to do slave labour, and actually, um, ultimately, they 
the firstborn child of every Israelite family was killed in an attempt by Pharaoh to um, to make sure that the, the the Jewish people didn't didn't become too powerful for him to control. And you can read about that in, in Exodus. Um, if you remember, Moses only escaped that by uh, you know, being placed in a basket and floated out on the river, if you remember that story. And this, this quotation from Exodus comes right after God's people have been rescued. And if you'll recall, uh, the method by which they were rescued, uh, it's a very dramatic story. Because ultimately, ultimately, for their salvation, all the firstborn had to die. The firstborn of Pharaoh, right down to the firstborn of the slaves in his palace. The firstborn of the livestock. It was total. There was no escape. The only escape for God's people and what brought their salvation was that on the night that that was to happen, they had to sacrifice a lamb. A lamb spotless, without blemish, as it's described. They had to take the lamb, they had to sacrifice it. Um, and they had to take the blood of the lamb and they had to paint it on the doors of their houses. So that when um, God's agent walked through that place, um, he would see the blood the blood of the lamb on their doors and would pass by and spare uh, spare the spare God's people. And this is the final step that does persuade a terrified Egyptian people to to allow God's people to go. And right after they've left, before they even crossed the Red Sea, we come to this passage in Exodus chapter 13. Um, and Exodus chapter 13, verse one um, says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. And this is sometimes talked about as the covenant of the firstborn. And it's that idea that the firstborn of all belong to God. And that actually, therefore, they need to be saved. They need to be redeemed, literally bought back off him. So this ceremony would involve uh, going to the going to the temple and and literally paying a price to redeem uh, redeem their children and why did they do this well exodus itself gives us a bit of a clue so if, if you read in exodus 13 and, and chapter 14 apologies i've not queued up our tech team enough so we don't have this on the graphic but feel free to look at it afterwards or read along um, in exodus 13 chapter 14 it says and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? And they're referring to that uh, sort of ceremony whereby they would consecrate the firstborn to the Lord. You shall say to him, by a strong hand, 
the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. I watched a film recently. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the Marvel films, but this one was all right. Uh, I can't remember the name of the film. It was one of the Captain America films. And Captain America gives this great speech when he's trying to rally his troops against some pretty incredible odds. And he says this, he says, um, the price of freedom is high. It always has been, but it's a price I'm willing to pay. Sounds a bit more dramatic, I think, when Captain America says it, but the sentiment is actually right. I think the point of this event, this ritual, I was, I think, to remind, at least in part, to remind the participants that the cost of our freedom is high. And it always has been. It actually costs. It costs the lives of the firstborn. But, and to finish paraphrasing the quote, it is a price that Jesus is willing to pay. And in fact, it's a price that only he is able to pay. Because in this ceremony, Jesus is the one who's, who's being redeemed by his parents. But ultimately, he is the one who goes on to be the redeemer. The redeemed in this situation becomes our redeemer. And so there's a reason why we as New Testament Christians, we don't have to go to the temple and and offer sacrifices. We don't have to go and uh, redeem our firstborn. The price of our freedom has been paid. This is what I think Simeon and Hannah realized. Uh, with the help of God's spirit, they were able to see it. Um, that in the coming of Jesus, we have all been redeemed. And that realization for them uh, leads them to thanksgiving, to praise of God, and to um, and to the the spreading of the good news of Jesus. You know, I wish it would have been it would be cool to be there. I think it would be remarkable to have been there. Uh, to have seen these things happen. Um, you know, I wonder, I wonder what Anna actually said to, to Mary and to Joseph. Um, I wonder how that all happened. I don't know. I'm sure in heaven we will, we will find out. Um, 
but I'd love to be filled with that same enthusiasm uh, and joy as they were filled with as we look at the, uh, the, the, the story of the birth of Jesus this Christmas. I'd love to be uh, filled with that same enthusiasm to praise God, to live a faithful and a patient life um, and to share the good news of Jesus with others. I need a fresh injection, if I'm honest, of that enthusiasm. And so I guess, I, well, a prayer for us, I think, is, is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get that. But this is also, I think, a reminder, this passage, um, as this ceremony was a reminder, uh, that we're not to forget the cost. We're not to forget the cost by which our salvation was purchased. And the fact that actually of ourselves, we could not have purchased it. Um, and it's only because of the completeness and the, the perfection and the glory of Jesus that this is possible. You know, we don't have to reenact these rituals. It would be wrong of us to try. But we should reflect uh, on what it cost uh, to redeem God's people and what it costs to redeem us. So that's as we move on to the, the rest of the Christmas story, I do hope that by uh, by the help of God's spirit, we will, we will as a fresh rediscover what it means to uh, to see Jesus in person. And, you know, much like Anna and Simeon, uh, we would be inspired um, to live faithfully and patiently and uh, to promote the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit.